You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Tonight at the Capitola Book Cafe, you are in for a literary feast. Two authors who call the Central Coast home converge on a common turf to compare, sort through, and epitomize the perils of being a San Francisco author in a mainstream world of literature. Or at least that's what your publicist told me, Carrie. I don't know where she got yeah. that. <laughs> they may actually have something totally different tonight in mind, and that is just fine with us. Uh, Terry has recently written and published his latest novel, Any Day Now, a coming-of-age story that may be science fiction and, well, maybe not. This road movie of a novel provides a transcendent commentary on America's civil liberties growing up in the 1960s while living in the New Age. Terry is an award-winning author and host of the monthly reading series in San Francisco, SFNSF. Conversing with Terry tonight is a local favorite author and celebrated writer, Karen Joy Fowler. Karen's engaging, enchanting narratives are full of unexpected twists and jaw-dropping settings. Her writing <coughs> also mixes genres as she redefines the power of fantasy as it mixes with contemporary literature. Tonight, she will dialogue with Terry, interview, prod, challenge, question, and the two of them will entertain. So please join me in welcoming two very talented and stunning authors, Terry Bisson and Kara Joy Fowler. Yeah. We've got our drinks, yep. I think I wrote that stuff for the <laughs> Did you? And now you wish to disavow all, all connection to it. Our plan for this evening is that I am going to introduce Terry fairly briefly. He is going to read for a bit, and then um, we are going to uh, talk and uh, are very hopeful that you will also want to talk with us. So um, please, uh, please don't hesitate. I, I, I can natter on, but I w would be best for all concerned if I did not. So. Ha have some questions in mind, and we will take this in any direction that you like. Terry and I have been friends for a very long time now. Um, I believe that I'm right when I say that we first met at the Nebulas. Is that true? We were both on the ballot in the short story category. Um, I was on the ballot for a story called Le Searle, which I still think is one of my better stories. So. It is just unfortunate that the other, another person on the ballot was Terry Bisson with Bears Discover Fire, um, who, who took home the nebula that night, and, and Bears Discover Fire continues to be uh, a touchstone story to people in the field, uh, often listed in favorite stories of all time. So um, my recollection of meeting Terry is that uh, he had just won, and I was being gracious and mature about it. Um, and I did love Bears Discover Fire. I could not complain too much. But my recollection of the evening was sitting and, and talking with him for quite some time and thoroughly enjoying him, but being interrupted um, frequently by people 
who wished to congratulate him on having one and who said things like, well, you know, God, it was just so much better than anything else that was on the ballot. <laughs> of, of course you won. I voted for you. I voted for you. That's, you maybe remember the evening a little differently, but that's the way. I remember, I remember you saying, congratulations, and then say, and that will be the end of it for me. <laughs> <laughs> So we have been friends ever since. That was 1990, I think. Um, and, um, and I have been often a guest at SFNSF, which Terry runs. And so Terry has often done this for me, introduced me and then asked questions of me afterwards and listened to me read. And it is a thrill and a pleasure to return the favor tonight. And here he is, uh, my good friend and a truly magnificent writer, reading from a truly magnificent book. Cool. Thanks a lot. Um, yeah, we, we kind of misunder... Well, at any rate, this is like a regular book event. I'm touring with this book. It just came out. Um, I just thought I'd give you a little taste of it. And that won't be entirely what we're talking about this evening, but um, it'll be a part of it. Um, this is um, this is a novel sort of about the 60s, and it sort of travels from Kentucky to New York, back to Colorado. It has to do with the, pol the politics and um, sort of cultural experiences of the 60s. And uh, I'm just going to give you a little piece of it so you get kind of the idea of what, which way it goes. Oh, and I should mention that there's a character named Mary who's actually a guy, spelled M-E-R-R-Y, the Mary Dane. There's a reference to something called the Weeper. The Weeper is a, an old Ford pickup with a bad um, water pump. There's a reference to a Vanderbike, I think. A Vanderbike is a motorcycle stolen from a student in Nashville. <laughs> um, there's a guy named Johnny who's a cowboy who has a horse named Color TV. This is so I won't have to interrupt it. Um, there's a reference to girl money. Girl money is food stamps. Um, there's a, a reference to a Christian commune called One Way. And um, that's probably all you need to know. It's March. That is the cruelest month, said Lowell. The old man got it wrong. With most of the snow gone, the dome was cold and drafty, and everyone huddled in blankets around the stove or stayed in bed like plain Bob and plain Jane, who were together again. All they did at Libra was fight, said Annie. Palomina asked him to leave. Evicted from his bed, Clay made a pallet on the floor between Lowell and the stove and directly below Dove, who sulked above them all on his scaffold, which in the day, which was in the day the coldest and at night the warmest spot in the dome. Clay and Lowell shared a bottle to pee in. Some mornings it froze, most mornings it froze. Please crawled into bed with Annie and Harl. Gasoline was $4.99. Neither the Wonder Truck nor the Weeper could make it down Johnny's Road anyway. The extended emergency had been further extended while the Supreme Court considered what the papers were calling the presidential primacy case. I'm sorry, your wife is... MLK's March on Washington drew an estimated 100,000, half of whom were turned back with tear gas. In the big rally at the Lincoln Memorial, four Hueys landed, scattering the crowd and trapping the speakers at the rail splitter's feet. MLK got away, but two of the impeached justices were detained with subpoenas to a grand jury 
investigating irregularities in judicial proceedings. Meanwhile, the troops disembarking in Oakland were tearing the insignia off their uniforms, discovering that being home wasn't the same as being mustered out, and the Panthers were calling themselves the King's Men. February is snow, March is mud. April, on the other hand, especially toward the end of the month, is sticky clay and the roads are almost passable. Even Johnny's. Worth a try, said Rhodes. Clay helped him strap the chains on the wonder truck and they sent Annie into Berg with the last of the girl money from the bottom of the can. Glue, Dove whispered hopefully as they watched her round the rock. Dove is trying to insulate a geodesic dome with styrofoam glued to the ceiling and it's not working. She'll make it, said Rhodes, and so she did. She was back before dark with cornmeal, sugar, sardines for the pregnant, please, bugler, and mail. The Hollywood money had arrived. 12-gauge deer, deer slugs for Rhodes and a water pump for clay in a faded cardboard box. Glue, Dove whispered hopefully. No glue, but guess who I saw in town? Yosemite? Little Richard? Guess who actually did what he said he was going to do? Bought a farm, the old Ordovies place on the river where the Texans were raising hay last year. Gantz, said Rhodes, he must have failed his bar exam. And guess who was hanging on his arm? Alameda. Libra was earth, oil painters and their ladies, log houses, adobe and railroad ties and blood floors, rules and dispensations, lines of sight, the Red Rocks was air, geodesics and plastic foam, pancakes and jerky, flatheads and herb. AAA was fire, the humbucker signal and Stratocaster buzz, blistering solos and color TV. Ordovies, on the other hand, was water. It comes with water rights, Gantz explained. Ditches from the river open every Thursday, 10 to 4. We can grow food. You mean hay, said Harl. These potatoes will grow, said Gantz. He showed the rockers the page in the catalog. Winnipeg's. I ordered them from Canada. Even Alameda looked optimistic. Rhodes was rolling a joint to celebrate. Water is the sacrament here south of the Arkansas River, he said. That's the ancient dispensation, ancient as the Pueblos, as ancient as the Creator himself. Herself, said Annie, as please looked on approvingly, very pregnant, smelling of sardines. Whatever, said Rhodes. Too many carburetors, said Rotella. They're fighting each other. The Vanderbike would run, but it wouldn't idle. Clay had taken it out from under the dome and ridden it down to AAA just for fun. Johnny's road was almost dry. It was spring. There are only two, he said. One too many, said Rotella. Take it up with the Japs. Indigo was in the loft playing with the trap set. The noise in the barn was deafening. Rotella put her fingers into her ears. Clay pulled the bike out into the sun and followed her into the big house for coffee and to check the news on TV. The news was deafening too. A big jailbreak in New York. Attica, a prison upstate, had revolted and asked for UN protection, which was promised but only partially received. There was a battle in which four New York State troopers were killed. Humphrey came to their funeral. MLK sent chartered buses, buses from Canada, and the prisoners made their way to New York City, where they were now under the protection of the UN 
which was initiating proceedings against the U.S. for human rights violations. Mary gave Clay a week old times for Lowell. When Clay got on the bike to go home to the Red Rocks, his left knee stuck to the tank. The Confederate flag on one side of the tank had been painted over with black paint. House paint. Indigo is on some kind of toot, said Rotella. The drums were rattling louder than ever upstairs. It's only on one side. Look, at it, look on it as a compromise. House paint, said Harl, when Clay got back to the rocks. It's not Indigo's fucking bike. It's not mine either. It's Bobby Lee's, and I might have to return it someday. Robert Lee, said Clay. Robert E. Lee. <laughs> so fucking what? That's ancient history. It was his roommate's bike anyway, and we were no fucking slave owners, and neither were our ancestors. Man for sure. I'm a Buley, said Clay. We always had colored help. California is getting seriously weird, said Ira. Tell me about it, said Lowell. Rotella was admiring the trucks in the ca caravan. They're all the same, she said. All 235, said Ira, makes maintenance simpler. That's the secret of the caravan. That's how we got here from California. Ira's was the most familiar. The Hell's Angel skull still showed through the new paint on the plywood camper. Overload, overlaid with day-glow paw prints of the coyote, Ira's new totem, the trickster. The other two were just as bright with sunbursts and tarot signs. Colorful hippies were emerging like clowns from tiny cars. The women ran for the big house in the bathroom while the men peed in the bushes. We barely coasted in on fumes, said Ira. Kick and the others are heading on to Taos. Ling and I thought we might hang here for a while. Ling was his lady. You're coming with us, said Clay. He pointed up the mountains. Gotta see the dome. California is getting seriously crazy, Iris said as they drove up. They'd had to pay an exit fee to leave. They came on the back roads all the way across the mountains since the interstates were all but closed. They only check for stickers at the exits, but that, that means that once you get on, you can't get off. We lost one truck in Durango. We lost another to the cops in Reno. That's another story. April is the cruelest month. Looks like you're overheating. Tell me about it, said Clay. He had refilled the weeper before leaving AAA, but it was already steaming halfway up Johnny's Road. The new pump wept as badly as the old one. Ling, Ira's new lady, wore a bright mail jacket. And if Clay had expected her to speak with a high Asian lilt, and he had, he was disappointed, but only for a moment. She was all American, a California girl, Santa Barbara, in fact, where her father was a plastic surgeon, then Stanford, then Berkeley for medical school. A real doctor, not a PhD? Clay was impressed. Ling patted the doctor's bag on her lap. I did my residency in the hate, most of it. Then I got sidetracked. Ling ran the free clinic in the hate, said Ira. We didn't get along at first, and then we did. Pride and prejudice, said Clay. Yeah, and she's Darcy, said Ira, proudly. It's a flying saucer, said, Cl said Ling, as they rounded the rock and the dome flew into view. Klaatu Barada Nikto. Lowell was right about the angels, said Ira, when dinner was over. Remind me to tell him so. It got ugly. 
We were delivering people to the march in Oakland and they freaked. Some of the weather clones were carrying a Viet Cong flag and the angels freaked on them. The Panthers stepped in. They have their own macho shit. It got bad. I'll bet. The caravan thing was the caravan thing was getting difficult anyway, said Ira. So we found a squat in Marin, an old farmhouse, a righteous place, under a little mountain called Humpback, after the whale. That's whale country, you know, Point Reyes. Whale and cattle. Dairy cattle, said Ling, holding her nose. Then two weeks ago, short one day at about eight in the morning, Ira said, the shit hit the fan. Ira and his sad sidekick were having coffee, getting ready to do some work on the trucks when eight Harleys came up the road. In a storm of sound, he said, they parked the bikes and Kick and I went out to greet them and they walked right past us without a word into the house and started trashing the place. Literally, said Ling. They threw all the mattresses out the door. They pitched the stove out, still burning. The stovepipe fell down. The children were crying. The women were watching. We were waiting on you, said Ling. You were armed. You could have stopped them. Not likely, said Ira. They were probably armed too, said Plain Bob. Don't they always carry guns, asked Annie. What am I going to do, said Ira? Shoot somebody over a stove? It wasn't just about a stove, said Ling. First they shot Kick's dog. Then they shot Susan's dog. Then they shot Juan's dog. They never touched the trucks, though, said Ira. That was the point, I think. We got the message. We split, and here we are. How many are you, asked Rhodes. They're only Ling and me for now. Kick and the others are heading south to check out the Taos communes. They want to grow stuff. You should talk to Gant, said Rhodes. He just bought a farm, the old Ordovice place. They're going to grow stuff. They need souls. They need peasants, said Harl. I like it here, said Ling, looking up. There's something about a round space that frees the soul. They can't impeach the entire fucking court, said Harl. Sure they can, said Lowell. They just did. Congress had voted articles of impeachment against the Supreme Court for defying a presidential order to issue a decision on the presidential succession by the Ides of March. They were still deadlocked, rumored to have almost come to blows, all those old men. Lowell folded his New York Times. The country was coming apart. The fighting in Oakland had turned fatal. The SS United States was scuttled in the harbor. It had been burned by the men who had not been allowed off. A boatload of anti-war supporters was turned back by the Coast Guard while the soldiers burned or jumped or jumped burning. Hunter Thompson in Esquire described it as a scene from hell. Meanwhile, Ordovice was coming together. Ira and Ling moved into the adobe covering the knocked-out windows with plastic sheets. Plain Bob and Plain Jane cleaned the mold out of the double-wide with a mop. While Alameda sulked in the international camper, Gantz counted his Winnipegs and waited for the fields to dry. Twas is not a word, said Annie. Tis so, said Rhodes. Taint, said Harl. They were playing Scrabble. I'm going to bed, said Clay. He slept alone in the honeymoon bus, which had never been reclaimed by Plain Jane and Plain Bob. 
The engine was still at the edge of Rotella's 40 horsepower at AAA, but the 6-volt battery held a charge and the radio worked. Wheeling, West Virginia was especially good late at night like the jukebox at the four-way. Del Rio, Texas wasn't bad. Truck driver music. Listen to those steel belts whine. Dove held up two fingers and Clay rolled him a cigarette and passed it into the phone booth when the door squeaked open. Sagrado's shell had long been closed, but the payphone still worked. Down the hill, a white Ford Ranger. Down the hill, a white Ford Ranger crossed the dry creek bed and stopped in front of the green, big green tent, the one-wayer's sanctuary. Four-wheel drive with a fat yellow arrow on the door. Yosemite got out on the driver's side, little Richard on the other. Yosemite looked straight up the hill, straight at Clay, and held up two fingers in a V, smiling. He had a beard like Moses. Clay gave him one finger back. Dove was hanging up. They headed home. The Weeper had no plates, but Sagrado's shell was on the west side of Berg, and on the county road, it didn't matter. You look pleased. You got through? Yes and no, said Dove. The Tel Aviv number hadn't worked, so Dove had called Cleveland to check the number with his mother, and wouldn't you know it, his father had answered. They hadn't spoken in two years, not since Dove had announced at the dinner table that he was gay, the new word for queer. On his father's 50th birthday, which was probably, he now realized, a mistake. Anyway, prompted Clay. Anyway, I guess I caught him by surprise. He said, hello, son. How are you? Son, he said. Then he said, there's somebody here who wants to talk to you. Then he hands off the phone, and there she was. Your mother? My grandmother. She was in Cleveland, no longer in Tel Aviv. And she says, Dove, is that you? I knew that was you. And she sounded great. She's been there almost a week. She had to fly out through Russia. Cool, said Clay. Some of the old folks stayed, she tells me, but she doesn't trust the Arabs. She said they stole her TV. The UN is resettling them in Germany, but she has a thing about the Germans, which you can't blame her. U.S. and South Africa are the only other countries that will take them in. South Africa, imagine that. One other little piece I want to read. A ride to one way? You got religion? I'm a doctor, Clay, said Ling. I have responsibilities. There are two new babies at one way. I delivered one two weeks ago. They invited you? Never mind that. I'll treat you to some gas. Clay had just driven down to have a look at the potato vines at Ordigan's, but what the hell? The Weeper had no plates, but one way was on the north side of Berg, just off the county road. Plus, he liked being with Ling. He liked her silences. Plus, the Weeper liked the country road, and Clay enjoyed the singing of the tires on the asphalt. And there it was, the long view out of the valley on the, onto the eastward-leading Great Plains. There was no traffic, of course. And then, what's that, Ling asked. A rhetorical question. It was a truck a familiar Ford Ranger with a fat yellow arrow pointing straight up on the door, parked crossways on the narrow road. There was a blue light blinking on the dash and a man standing beside the truck with a gun. What the fuck, said Clay. It was little Richard. 
he stopped. Little Richard set his rifle into the back of the truck, standing up and walked toward the weeper. He was wearing his usual regalia, filthy leather pants and a worn ribbon shirt. Yosemite watched from behind the wheel. Little Richard approached, looking embarrassed. Hey, Clay. Hey, what? What's this? Just a courtesy stop. Volunteer. Do you have any cigarettes? Clay handed him the bugler can. Can't smoke it one way, Little Richard said, rolling one. He'd never been very good at it. His hands were shaking. Looks like you're overheating a little. What the fuck is this all about? Well, Little Richard tapped the end of his cigarette on the windshield of the weeper apologetically. You don't have a sticker, he said. So what? You can't go into town without an extended emergency EE sticker. I didn't make the rules. That's for sure. The sticker's for the interstate, said Clay. I'm not on the interstate, and I'm not going to town anyway, and anyway, it's none of your fucking business. No need to get ugly, said little Richard, handing him back the blue-green can. I'm trying to handle this in a friendly way. On what authority, Ling asked over Clay's shoulder. Volunteer security, said little Richard. He reached into his pocket and pulled out a billfold and opened it. A flag sticker on the inside of one fold said, America on alert, Homeland Security. Clay laughed. That's not a badge, man, that's a sticker. <laughs> the badges haven't come in yet, said little Richard. Look, Clay, don't be such a shit. He can't help it, said Yosemite, who had come out of the truck and joined him. Put that cigarette out and let me handle this. He was carrying the rifle from the back of the truck. It was an M16, military issue. Just a courtesy stop, said Yosemite with a big smile. His Moses beard was trimmed, but his mustache was bigger than ever. I am a federal deputy, and this man is my deputy. Then move your deputy deputy's fucking federal truck, said Clay. This is a county road. Not anymore. Perhaps you people don't read the papers, but this county's been federalized under the new extended emergency. That includes the roads. I read the papers, said Clay. He didn't, actually, since Mary had stopped bringing him up to the rocks. He hadn't expected the extended emergency to extend this far, this soon. We're operating under National Guard authority here, said Yosemite, and I'm afraid we can't allow you to pass without the proper authorization papers. You don't even have plates, much less the proper sticker. If you like, I'll escort you into town and you can speak with the captain yourself. We're not going to town, said Ling. We're going to one way. I'm a doctor on call. I don't think you have the authority to interfere with me. I know who you are, Dr. Ling, said Yosemite. Are you an American citizen? It's none of your business, sir. May I see your birth certificate, please? It might be about the new babies, offered little Richard. There's a clinic in Colorado Springs, said Yosemite. That's only an hour up the interstate. That will do for us. Let's get the hell out of here, said Ling. Tell Rhodes hello, said Yosemite. And now, said Clay, as they turned around, you have met Yosemite. There they are, said Clay. He pointed up. Three vapor trails, like ducks, in formation, heading east to west. Then on the southern horizon, three more, west to east. MiG-21, said Harl. The UN had declared the entire U.S. a no-fly zone after, an, after the Air National Guard strike on the Jersey Turnpike from Fort Dix. 
They watched in silence for a long time. The peyote brought this, thought Clay. Careful what you wish for. So that's a selection. Um, Um, I probably should have said the form of this book is in very short squirts. Uh, so that's why it sounds so disjointed, but that's actually the, uh, the form of the narrative. But the, the overall, that's the, the overall thrust of the book. I think that's, I think that's a great selection. And um, to me, the book is, I've, I've never read a book like it. Um, I think it's very artfully put together. To me, um, it it is there is a, a kind of small personal story with a with characters that you get to know well who who live um, uh, spend much of the book on this commune, um, and and that part of the book reads like a realist novel. But sort of in the frame around that story, the larger story of what's happening in the U.S. and um, how how history is unfolding gets more and more and more bizarre and less and less like what uh, what actually happened and also uh, encroaches more and more on the personal story. So, um, uh, so, so I have two, two questions to start off with based on that. Um, one of which is, um, I think that uh, that John Crowley's response to the novel was, "If you were actually there, this is where you were." The, the this novel, um, you're obviously going to be more um, up on the responses to the book than I than I am. But what I have seen really focuses on that small personal story and has not really talked a lot about the, the uh, alternate history of the frame. Um, so, um, you know, you're a great writer and you do wonderful characters. You've got great observation. The prose is beautiful. Why, t why add the fantasy, the fantastical element? What? <laughs> you could probably make it in the real world of mainstream writing. <laughs> why do you refuse to do that? <laughs> well, uh, the, it, the book is what's called a, uh, an alternate history, and I, I am, uh, you know, a, a science fiction writer. Um, well, there's a short answer to that. One, one is that, uh, like many others, uh, many other people, I went through the 60s in sort of the generic way, you know. I sort of, uh, the same thing happened to many, many people. And um, so the book, the, uh, the outlines of the book are about a kid from a small town. He goes to New York. He gets involved in the anti-war movement, the anti-racist civil rights movement. He moves to a, con you know, that kind of stuff. Um, and I, I always resisted writing about that because my feeling was everybody knows how it turned out. We all know how it turned out. And so it seemed... Uh, why not write science fiction instead? Why not write, um, you know, something a little grander and bigger or, anyway, more marketable? <laughs> um, but then I thought at some point, well, if you are a science fiction writer, you can sort of, or a, any kind of writer. A no, what's a novelist but a, a 
god in a little god in pajamas with a laptop. You know, it's, you can you can make it turn out the way you want to. So um, so that's why I the took pajamas it off. is a pretty touch. We yeah. we like to think so. <laughs> so so anyway, um, that was sort of my impulse on it. That uh, why not write about the '60s and write about it. Um, as a utopian novel, as you would want the 60s. Even though some of this is pretty dark, it's, uh, it has a utopian air to it. Um, so that was the impulse. It wasn't really about, um, well, that was it. I, I figured, well, I can change it, and why not? And uh, I don't know if you people, a lot of you here, many of you know science fiction, so you know what an alternate history is. And... Um, uh, it's more popular now than it probably ought to be. It's more popular than it used to be. But uh, I had written uh, an alternate history of the Civil War in which John Brown's raid succeeded and the war turned out differently. And um, But the real inspiration for this, in a way, was Philip Roth's uh, The Plot Against America, which, uh, I don't know if you people know this, what happened was that Lindbergh went into the convention in, I guess it was 36, and stole the nomination from Roosevelt. So the U.S. didn't enter the war, was pro-German, pro-Nazi, and it changed everything. Uh, oddly enough, Roth never know, he didn't know he was writing an alternate history. He thought he had thought of the whole thing. He didn't realize it was a sort of a, an ancient genre of science fiction ever since Philip K. Dick and um, Well, they're always people. doing that to us, aren't yeah, they? they? Always are. thinking they, they invented, yeah. but invented I sort the of, wheel. Yeah, I sort of stole. The, the central thing, uh, so I sort of stole some of the ideas from him, which I figure turn about fair play. But uh, that's what it is. It's an alternate history of the 60s, and the main formal decision I think I made, uh, um, I don't know if you'd call it formal, but it's sort of a political thriller in a way, but it's seen from the outside. It's seen from people who are not involved in it, you know. So that was, that's sort of what you're saying. It's, it's a realist novel in a way, and all this stuff is going on, but you, you don't, you're not involved in it. It's not like the born supremacy uh, where you're, the main character it's seen from the outset that's i don't know what you'd call that's a literary device it too. is a literary device what would you call i that? don't know uh, it's a it's a wonderful one i think you know it's i always wanted um when the x-files was on i always wanted to write an episode in which the secretaries um had a crush on david Duchovny, and the, the entire episode would be their issues with daycare and you know, their, their hopeless crush on him, and it, it would just all be about the secretarial pool and what they were writing, but that periodically um, Fox and Scully would stumble in, you know, drenched in mud from head to toe with no explanation of where they'd been or what had happened, and stumble out again, and you would be back to the daycare problems of the secretary. Yeah, exactly, and they'd be wondering, are they ever going to get it on or not? Yes, What's going on? Yeah, yes. No. Well, they, yeah, it's a... Uh, it's a um, it's a rich but not particularly um, lucrative uh, <laughs> formal way of doing things, but it's a lot more fun in a way. It's like it's like Faust told by the his secretary or something like that. So that was, but that's so what an it is. Alternate it's an alternate history, history usually picks one change 
you know, something that does not happen or does happen, and then everything else tumbles from that. Is, do you have a, is there the one, is yes. it the Robert Kennedy? Well, or? I'm not supposed to give this away. All right, never mind. No. Pretend but I didn't ask. No, actually I have two. I have two. One is, uh, and this comes from a point of view. I, also, this is a book in my heart that's close to my heart because I was actually part of the new left back in the 60s and all that. And there's two, um, I wasn't a supporter of Robert Kennedy, but uh, I was part of the anti-war movement. But the, the main, there's two changes in this. One is uh, Kennedy is not killed. He's sort of almost killed, but then he comes back in 68. They're fighting in the streets. Humphrey's there. Uh, who's the guy, Ribicoff? Huh? Robert Kennedy. Robert Kennedy. Robert. Yeah, Robert. Robert. And, and, you know, he wasn't shot in California. He was shot in California. But he didn't die. And then die. the Irish mafia spirited him away somewhere, and nobody quite knew what happens to him. Then he shows up with a bloody rag around his head at the, in 68. Well, who was it that uh, Daly is in At there the Chicago Convention. Calling Ribicoff a dirty Jew, and uh, all this that kind of stuff is going on. And Kennedy walks up and steals the nomination. And But the other thing, the other hinge in history was that the Russians, the Russian troops mutiny and they don't go into Hungary. So you you have a, a um, Bolshevik coup in Russia and Russia becomes an actual ally of um, national liberation movements and socialist movements around the world instead of just being a standoff with the U.S. there. It actually becomes a revolutionary um, force. So those two things together uh, sort of are the motors that run this thing. Well, my second question, um, which you've, uh, you've sort of maybe already answered, um, is why it's so hard to write about the 60s. Because everybody knows that it turned out. And, <laughs> uh, you, you know, you feel like there's been so much written about it. And, in fact, there hasn't really. You know, the I think because it's very, very hard, very hard to do, or I find it very hard to do. It's hard to do. Yeah, it is hard to do because it's hard to do with any irony or distance at all. And uh, did anybody ever see uh, the Ang Lee movie? Ang Lee, who's my favorite filmmaker of all time, made a movie about Wood Woodstock. It was an yeah, embarrassment. fairly recently. Yeah, it was terrible. You know, I don't know why it's so hard. Uh, there's something that the parody is kind of baked in, so it's hard, it's hard to be realistic and not ridiculous right. somehow. Yeah. It's what? Still too personal? Yeah. Or something. I don't know. I don't know. I feel, you know, I, I was, I lived through the 50s, and I lived through the 60s, and I can write about the 50s, no problem. I can't write about the 60s, right. which I actually remember much better, and which, uh, you know, is where my heart is. I appreciate the fact, I feel your book makes a distinction that a lot of books do not make between the political activists and the hippies. I'm always, my children are always describing my husband and me as hippies, which we were not. We were, we were radicals. We were political activists. Mm -hmm. We had very little patience with the hippies, in fact. Hmm. Um, well, yeah, that's one of the, well, it's one of the distinctions, but then, of course, it all gets, the distinction becomes unimportant yes. as the events outside, uh, yeah, yeah, no, I make a 
distinction. There's another scene in there that um, um, I didn't read, but uh, yeah, it's there are decisions made about. Um, there's a scene in there uh, where the main character, when he first gets to the commune, um, a guy takes him aside and he says, "Do you want to spend your life destroying the old world or building the new one?" You know, and he's like, "Oh, I never thought of it like that." You know, and um, so yeah, the distinction is is definitely there in this book, and it was there in the real world, very much so. But why it's hard to write about it, I don't know. Uh, I, f I found it. Uh, Are there any books that you think do it very particularly well? I don't read them. I don't like to read it, stuff about the hippies and all that stuff. <laughs> I like no. T.C. Boyle's Drop City. You did? I did, yeah. See, I never read that book. Um, and I because I had an attitude, not about Boyle. I'm not hugely fond of him but there really was a drop city and the guy in here that's this the character called Rhodes uh, uh, is based loosely on a guy who was actually one of the founders of drop city there really was a drop city it wasn't in Canada or somewhere it was in uh, um, and I always thought it was really weird that he named it drop city and it had nothing to do with the real drop city so what happens in drop city is it geodesic domes? Uh, it's a you know it's it's a, a a familiar '60s trajectory I think where a you know a group of fairly utopian um, idealistic people try to create a community which is then easily preyed on by people who um, who see the opportunity to do that and and destroy the community. Uh, the community is destroyed through its own idealism eventually. Why do they destroy it? They? Uh, they've got no mechanism for dealing with um, people who are there to prey on them. In what way? What do they do to them? They do, um, you know, they, um, uh, there was a, 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 an element of the um, sexual revolution that was, um, very aggressive towards the women, you know, a sort of sense that, uh, uh, you know, if you had a kind heart, you'd, you wouldn't be reluctant to sleep with people who needed you to sleep with them, that, you know, that there was something, um, something troubling about a woman saying no that, that did not reflect well on her. Um, we're, we're seeing the flip side of that now, apparently. N now we're all sluts. Um, <laughs> All right. Well, I we shouldn't be talking about T. Boyle's book anyway. All right, we shouldn't. All right. I didn't. I didn't. I had right. an attitude because Drop City's actually in this book uh, a little bit, you know, and the real story of Drop City was uh, these people. Uh, they went to a lecture. There were a bunch of artists from New York who were trying to figure out what the hell to do with themselves, and they went to a lecture by um, Buckminster Fuller, and they liked what he said about geodesic domes, and he gave them five hundred bucks. He, gave, he just gave them 500 bucks, and they built a bunch of really crummy domes uh, covered with cut-out-of-car tops and stuff on the side of a highway in New Mexico. And it only lasted two or three years, but uh, that was a real drop city. And um, that's not what I wrote about. But and yet one of my favorite parts of your book is the endless attempt to um, make the geodesic dome 
to, to put those styrofoam right. uh, <laughs> yeah. heat-saving panels into the geodesic dome. Yeah. Well, we were supposed to talk about the problem. I mean, this is the, um, I mean, this does mix science fiction and serious grown-up real fiction in a certain way. But I don't think you ever exactly did that. I mean, you've done both, but you haven't quite mixed them in that way. Mixed them? I, I will have to think about that. I don't know. I mean, you've succeeded in both fields. But uh, um, I think my first novel, Sarah Canary, wasn't always read that way, well, but true. I intended it yeah. that way. Sarah Canary, I would say. Does anybody else have questions? Yes. It's interesting because, you know, the 60s, I was in Chicago in the 60s. I was at the convention. I was in the middle of a couple of the riots, in, in, the race riots in, in, in there. And it was, you know, that sense that I was there just as the, the observer. You know, I wasn't a participant. You know, it was, it was during the days when I was trying to behave myself and not cause any <laughs> trouble. And um, so that, I like that part of it, that, that somebody's sort of standing outside of it and watching what was going on. Because I knew people on all parts of it. Right. And uh, it makes it really interesting. So it was like, you know, I really was there. You have something to, to add. Yeah. Well, it. Uh, I was asking. I was saying. You know, this is told from the outside. From a, but and I was saying that seems a fairly common device in fiction. You, and of course, that's Henry James. You know, that's there's a lot of of uh, fiction that's it's a fairly ancient way of telling a story. But in the case you of know. your book, it really allows a very broad look at the world. Right. The main technical problem I had in this book is, of course, how do you get the news in these people that don't have a phone or a TV, you know, and that that was tough. <laughs> and I don't know how well I succeeded. I've always having somebody deliver a newspaper and somebody's <laughs> always, and I did a, I did a thing, um, uh, a, a how-to list of writing one time where I said, uh, um, how do you deliver information in a story? And I said, try not to have characters read in newspapers, you know. But <laughs> that's exactly what I, I did, probably more than I should have. In this thing. But that, that's a problem. But, um, yeah, I've always, I mean, I also feel like another ancient, um, sort of ancient, or a, uh, let's say a, a revered and well-used and sort of maybe used up idea and structural idea in fiction is where you always have your your hero is a little stupid you know so he's not the maker of things he's the things happen to this person is that he makes them happen and uh, I know my editor in this book we kind of went her as she described him as effectless you know not feckless but affectless I'd never quite heard that word before but I think it's a good description and I use I actually use that quite a bit have somebody who doesn't quite understand what's going on, and um, that's pretty common. That's pretty good. Yeah. Well, um, I noticed when you were reading, reading your novel, and sometimes, and I was like, in my time reading novels, because I read novels sometimes, and they, they'll use a word like a bad word, like F-U-C-K. And, and I noticed, and it's, 
it seems like it just makes the story better or more interesting or whatever. But I noticed that when you were, it seems like, do writers use that word a lot in words? It seems like you used that word a lot in that book because you kept on saying it. Well, yeah, I did. I used it in that one thing. I just wanted to. Um, I guess, yeah, I guess a lot of writers, I just never noticed. Maybe because you were reading it out loud. Yeah, I was reading that loud, and I picked a scene where he's, uh, this guy's really, uh, I was going to say pissed off, he was P.O.'d, and uh, uh, I was, uh, you know. Um, do, you, do you use it a little more than the average man? No, I think I probably use it less. Um, but, you know. I was just standing there, and it just seemed like you were. Yeah, well, that's interesting, because I, I think of it as now as not have. it used to have a shock effect. But I don't really think it does. It doesn't much. You know, anymore. yeah. I just finished a novel that um, the uh, point of view character is the age of my children, which means she's about thirty-eight, and uh, and my children use the word "fuck" and "fucking" like you know, like you would use "very." It's fucking cold instead of it's very cold. It's and and in order, and and there's a lot of it in my book, and I'm aware of it, but I also think it doesn't sound like there. Well, yes. Yeah. Jane Austen does not resort to no, fucking a, very often. No, it's a sea change that really yeah. since the 60s. I mean, it was yeah. uh, oh, okay. even uh, Mailer's uh, first, uh, uh, what was it? Um, Naked the Dead. They couldn't, you couldn't use it. And that was, uh, you know, so that's been a sea change. But I think right now, uh, um, I don't think of it as anything, having any... Uh, shock value whatsoever and it may be reading and, and you see it in movies and theater and but stuff you're also David. writing about how the people were talking back then when it was yeah. to a certain extent a conscious choice you that's know, true we can be in this yeah 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 he yeah. was he was using it because it was yeah. uh, it was a little bit more aggressive a little more of a of a chop yeah you had a question or a, a statement uh, yeah, I think the fuck is a great word. And it's, um, uh, great you know, fucking word. It is one of the few words that actually is, um, can be used as every single, uh, what's it called? Part of speech. Part of speech. <laughs> From the mother tongue. It can be a, a, a verb, a noun, an adverb, an adjective, gerund. Interjection. You know, every, every, so it's got tremendous use. Value. That is fucking amazing. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Um, uh, but the, the comment that I wanted to make was, well, first, just 60s, a teenager, hippie worker, and drawn in the Bay Area to uh, the radical side, anti-imperialist side of the anti-war movement. And then, because we were close enough to San Francisco and Oakland, we saw the Panthers as really being what we should prove, we should be supporting, and we did. And so, um, becoming radicalized and becoming part of the organization and, and that growing and the family and community and all. That was all wonderful. At that time, I, I read, but less than when I wasn't so radical, science fiction then for me was just kind of bullshit. And I spoke to a good friend of mine, Bruce Franklin, who said, you're reading the wrong stuff. So he gave me a copy of uh, Olaf Stableton's Last and First Men. This is a positive utopian vision. We know Bruce Franklin. Do we not? I know now, Bruce Franklin. To me, science fiction goes both ways. There's some good stuff, 
like this one, which I think is uh, oh. this book of yours. Uh, Thank great. you. I think it's really a great book. It's fun. It's fire on the mountain. If anybody has well, it. thank you. I appreciate it. Yeah. Um, a comrade in, in New York said, uh, uh, "Read Terry's book." Huh. So I read that, and I think that this is not just fun and interesting and different, but it's reading it. It's also an important book. It is science fiction, but it's science fiction used in a way that really draws you to an alternate history that ought to have been, could have been, and using science fiction that way I think is politically really, really good. How much other science fiction is there like that that you that you like or recommend, both of you? Well, we, we could probably come up I appreciate your praise uh, Bruce I know Bruce Franklin too yeah. and uh, um, did you go to Stanford is that where you met Franklin? I, was at, I, I hung out at Stanford at night during the right. movement. well I think he did too but anyway he has written a lot about science fiction and uh, um, I mean uh, yeah there's a I mean that's a utopian novel this novel's not quite as utopian but it comes out of the same uh, it, it's not as explicit um but I think there's a lot of, uh, uh, we both have a good friend, uh, Kim Stanley Robinson, whose uh, Pacific Edge is quite utopian. I think the Mars novels are utopian. I think most of Stan's stuff is utopian, wouldn't you? I, yes, I think there's certainly that impulse. And um, what's the new one called? Well, Tw there's 20, 2312. 2312, or? which is, has not been published yet, but... Um, Kim Stanley Robinson. Yeah, he's uh, very well known uh, in the science fiction field. And um, uh, yeah, 2312. And um, yeah, he stands a socialist, a leftist, a progressive. And, and uh, but he, yeah, it's a, uh, and as, as you say, a lot of science fiction is dystopian. It's dark. It's a crummy world. It's going to get worse, you know. Uh, I used to think Gibson was like that, actually, a lot, because, uh, but, you know, who else besides, Bruce Sterling pretends to be utopian, but I don't think it ever really is. I don't know. What do you think? I, I it, it would, it's news to me that he pretends to be utopian. He certainly <laughs> has no patience with Stan Robinson's no, right. utopianism, his type, um, Ursula Le Guin has yeah. elements yeah, um, and, a, and works a that... Utopian, definitely a utopian um, vision. This novel, you were leading pretty close and looking at the pages. To the end, yeah. It sounds like we're going to have a very utopian ending to me. That was, those last pages were pretty spooky. Well, it depends on what your utopian vision is. You know, I the... Uh, <laughs> the not the a lot of room there <laughs> Well, I'll leave that um, for <laughs> other people to decide. But um, it's an interesting, you know, the, the whole question about, um, um, you know, science fiction. Science fiction, to me, originally started as a sort of a utopian. It was almost like um, a publicity press for space travel. And space travel is going to expand the world and make it wonderful. And then in the 60s, it began to get a little dystopian. People were beginning to see, oh, you know, there's some, there's a downside to all this kind of stuff. 
And then... Um, this is, is American science fiction you're talking about. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, well, most science fiction is American, or it was then, and then and maybe British, right? It was a pretty much... An, I also think it's a Well, if you take H. Bruce Franklin's course, you read a lot of Russians, so... Okay. Russian and Soviet stuff from way back is pretty far out. Yeah, yeah, that's true. That's true. Uh, but other than that, it was pretty much an English language. You took his course? I sat in on his course. I, cool. I went to Berkeley, and he taught at Stanford, so... I was um, but my parents lived in Palo Alto. I was home one summer, and somebody who was taking the course said I would like it, and it was big enough that nobody noticed if I and he's teaching, walked in. He teaches in. at Rutgers now, I think. And I'll probably see him next week. I'm going. Uh, I'm going to the uh, Left Forum in uh, New York, which yeah. is the old Socialist Scholars Conference. And actually, I did a panel with him one time, and. Uh, but anyway, he, he's very knowledgeable on it. He would know more than me, obviously. I, I've never been able to read the Russians. We, and I didn't even like the Strachan brothers. I don't know. I'm just not serious enough. You need a professor guiding you through it. I do. It's Please. Hey, what the hell is it? Instead of getting a little bit more out there, and I thought, hmm, okay, yeah. uh, this isn't supposed to be true. But I'm wondering how, because of course, young people don't remember it at all. And they, <laughs> you know, my, my friends who were in their 30s or 40s even have very inaccurate ideas and, and categorize things wrongly and so on. And so I'm wondering, how do you, when you're writing a book like this, you just assume that everybody remembers accurately what happened 50 years ago, or do you in some way insert the real story so that people can know that it's an alternative? You know, this is a problem. I hadn't thought about this. Um, it's a problem. If you remember the 60s, you weren't there. You weren't there, yeah. yeah. Well, that's, that's true to, to a great extent, but I don't know. That's... Um, um, well, as, as you were reading that, I was thinking that's one of the really interesting aspects of this novel and of alternate history, particularly this novel, because we've been rewriting history, the 60s. They've been rewritten every decade since. We've got a brand new version of them. And so who the hell knows, you know? You just think, oh. Yeah, but they're not that different where uh, Martin Luther King has a, a shadow government in Canada, you know. That, uh, I don't know. I, that's a that's a good question. That would be, you know, um, one of the things that a lot of writers now, and particularly a lot of science fiction fantasy writers, have been d doing is going into YA, the young adult. There's more money in YA. There's you get more readers. You get more. The books are shorter. The books are shorter, and all this kind of stuff. Now Karen doesn't do this, and I don't. Although I've done it, but. I shouldn't have, but um, but it would be interesting because in YA you really have that problem. You you know uh, maybe that's why they don't do alternate history and I don't know I don't know. But it is really a problem in my book. In my book, uh, I just assume I assume that um, people know history, which is is not that's not very smart on my point. 
it's, it's really not, yeah. How much is this a cautionary tale for the kinds, I think that we've had a revolution that in our country in terms of our relationship to the Constitution and the things that are important and the standing of people versus corporations and you know sort of a whole bunch of the ways of thinking are very very different than the way I was brought up yeah and um, there were parts of things there I was thinking ooh, this is a possibility here and now well I don't think this of this as a cautionary tale uh, in I think you'd have to I think the um, it wasn't written that way I mean some of the stuff you can you can um, I wasn't thinking of it that way. I mean, anything that's sort of leftist and, um, you know, progressive can be a cautionary tale in a way. But if I were writing a cautionary tale about the stuff that's going on, I'd have entirely different elements because it's, it's very different, I think, what they're, um, you know. I mean, this is written from a point of view, really, of the, in the 60s when, um, well, I don't. I shouldn't be answering this question because I don't really. Um, I don't know. I don't know. It's a, it's probably a anything's a cautionary tale that has a. It's a cautionary tale in a way, but if I was really writing a cautionary tale or even a science fiction or an alternate history about today, with the stuff you're saying about the. You know the big corporations and uh, you know uh, globalization and stuff. There's none of that in here. There's no globalization. This is all. Uh, if I were to look at this from the point of view of a critic, I would be critical of it because I would say, um, you know, I have all this stuff that takes place where nations. It's done between nations and the United Nations and all that. United Nations is not even a force anymore. They don't. You know. I think that. Um, Something like this today would be very, I would use different elements. I was um, just thinking about in terms of the relationship, you know, it's, it's, I've always sort of looked at things in terms of, of who has power. Yeah. And who, who's not being served. Yeah. And, and what it takes to, to, to bring that into balance. Mm -hmm. And that, that, that sort of the, the thrust of the 60s for me was the belief that people could live together peacefully, that they could. Uh, care about each other regardless of, of the surface stuff. Right. And that we could have uh, the generosity with something that was possible. Um, and that just because it was done yesterday that way doesn't mean we have to do it that way today. And what I'm seeing is sort of, you know, I feel like where we are right now is we are back in 1950 in Selma, Alabama. Well, in many, terms of, 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 you know, land, ver, you know, things, who owns things versus people. And, and where that, you know, that separation that go, that's gone on. I agree, but I also think there's big differences like uh, the, the uh, I mean, this is the sort of the background of this or the subtext of this is you have a generation that uh, they can drop out of college and back in. They don't worry about health care. They don't have any debts. They get out of, you know, they don't owe any money to anybody. They, uh, they're much freer. You know, it was so easy for us just to kind of walk away, get out of college. Well, I'm not worried about it. Now Except for the draft. Huh? Except yeah. for the draft. Right, the draft. Yeah, yeah. So it was, it's different elements. Um, um, I do think, and I obviously haven't read the book, so it's just 
Yeah. You haven't read. Yeah. I haven't met anybody yet that hasn't read the book. <laughs> <laughs> but I think that the feeling of running into people who you've known in another context with their truck across the road and a gun and they're deputized, you know, think of ex-Yugoslavia, Bosnia, whatever, where people that you've had absolutely normal neighborly relations mm. with can suddenly be ready to blow you away. That was very alarming to me. <laughs> and right. I think, you know, we don't know what could happen. So my ears certainly heard Homeland you're right. Security. No, you're right. And, and we, we haven't experienced that. Yeah. And we didn't experience it in the 60s. If you yeah. think about it, the anti-war movement, you know, the uh, you're fighting the police and the law, but you're never fighting the uh, like they like they were in Greece or in Latin America, exactly. just uh, thugs who would or in or in Egypt, you know. I mean, the, I think the next, I think when the movement really gets built yeah. here, yeah. it's not going to be about the cops. Why not get uh, a whole bunch of uh, thugs with and nobody knows who they are, you know, and send them in to beat people, huh? We outnumbered groups like the. Yeah, but I'm I'm just saying, yeah, that was the t that was the terrifying thing to me. It wasn't that people were fighting, but and we I don't think I've ever experienced that. It's like the people you need all of a sudden, and just like Bosnia, and that's really what this book is about. It's about America coming to pieces and beginning to, you know, uh, breaking and, and up. That you're really not protected from that by being right. off in the commune. Right. No, you're not protected. Yeah. Driving on the road up to the Christian. yeah. That's sort of the arc of the book, yeah. And, uh, I also and think that um, when you do write about the 60s, it's the, the um, nod forward is inevitable because the argument is so much still the same. You know, we're still arguing with the same people over the same things. You know, Dick Cheney is still there to... Um, to complain about the way we behaved when we were 20 years old. And, you know, there's, there's still, this is another question I have, um, which is my sense is that the activists and the hippies in the 60s are, are kind of loathed t today on both sides of the spectrum. You know, I'll be reading uh, a liberal blog um, where I think I'm among friends and there'll be just a throwaway line about, you know, those entitled baby boomers. And um, why, why is that? Why are we so disliked still all these years later? Well, I stopped doing that. <laughs> Of generation X and Y, but what are they inheriting? I oh, think it's about 
global warming, et cetera, et cetera. And it says that this really appeals to people if they just come up with all different ways that the world is going to end. And then what happens after that? And what do they have to go on with? And then That's certainly the Hunger Games. Yeah, the Hunger Games. That's the first thing that they mentioned. Yeah. yeah. And then oh. That's interesting. So that's yeah. seen as a whole trend, huh? Yeah. Yeah, see, I'm so out of it here. What about Paolo Bacigalupi? What do you think of Paolo's stuff? Is it dystopian or utopian? I think it's, you know, I, I think it's the, the um, heartbroken utopian writing yeah. out of his um, yeah. disappointment. and So I think it ends up dystopian, but I think the impulse is... Uh, a, a crushed utopian impulse. Maybe. Is Alex, I see. Is Alex Jones keeping the dystopian fire burning? Who? Is Alex Jones keeping the dystopian fire burning? I'm embarrassed uh, to say I don't Alex know who Jones, Alex Jones the, is. Oh, is that Alex from Greenville, do you think? Um, he's sort of a liberal. Oh, okay. I don't know. You know what I've noticed is um, the I also I do a certain amount of editing for um, I just I just edited a book a memoir of a of a, a guy who was in the Weather Underground for years and uh, and I've done uh, for a couple of the old weather people because I was sort of on the edges of you know knew some of them especially after and. There was that movie about five years ago called The Weather Underground. It actually was, uh, you know, sort of a documentary about Bernie Dorn and Bill Ayers. And then on the one hand, you have, um, you know, the demon, you know, Obama hung out with a terrorist and Bill Ayers and this and that and the other. On the other hand, I found among young people who don't even know much about the history of the 60s, Somehow the weather underground has been is sort of seen like the Lincoln Brigade. It's it's they're okay now, you know. They they're not, uh, but I think that's just with the kids, like the Occupy age of kids. So I think it cuts both ways. I think there are people who scorn the. Yeah, mostly they do scorn the '60s. It was well. That's the isn't that the whole point of Murray's Charles Murray's new book about how the '60s destroyed the fabric of America. Yeah, and, and every um, column David Brooks writes yeah. is the yeah. same theme. But I think you're missing something, too, though, because I don't think it's one way. I mean, his daughter is 20. She just went to Burning Man for the first time with her boyfriend a year or so younger. She grew up loving music, not because of us, like Bob Dylan, Jimi Hendrix, the Beatles. It's amazing to me that so much of that culture actually is accepted and embraced and that a lot of the cultural things like survive film etc people saying i wish i'd been alive then or experienced that whether or not they really would have liked it yeah. but i don't think it's just i mean if you're only reading david brooks sure but i think there is still really an appreciation for a kind of idealism everybody liked the music i think that's I um but i think not not just the music. I taught ESL for a long time, and I had students coming into my class from UCSD to to volunteer in you know, community studies. And I was just astounded. And some of them were named Yarrow or something by their parents. Right. But they had exactly <laughs> that same impulse to, to, to do something, to go someplace, to help people, whatever. So I don't think that there's that sense of just universally it's being rejected or despised. 
feel better. <laughs> I'm, sure, I'm sure you're right. I will. I will feel better. Um, does anybody yeah. else have a final question or comment? Or Yarrow? Does Yarrow have any? <laughs> Where, did Yarrow leave already? We are. Oh, well, listen. Well, thank so you. It's just beautiful. Um, I wrote a piece recently where um, I, I asked a bunch of my friends who are writers, what's, it, what's the difference between literary fiction and genre fiction? And literary science fiction and literary horror and literary fantasy. And is there a difference? You know, because you write kind of in a literary style as compared to something Well, thank you very much. That that's that's a great note to end on. I mean, I I appreciate that. I mean, I um, there's a lot of writers, and I will say this that um, I sort of I've been a I fell into science fiction 25 or 30 years ago, and um, there's a lot of great writers in science fiction. There's a lot of really bad ones too, but it's like anything else. But it's it's. Uh, it's been a great privilege to be, for, we're talking about Stan Robinson, you know, or Karen, or Ursula Gwynn. I, 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 w neither of us ever, have ever felt like we need to apologize for the, our colleagues, for ourselves. I mean, we, you know, and They don't what, always dress great, but. Yeah, yeah <laughs> we always look so great. But, um, yeah, I, that's very nice of you to say. It is, and it and allows me to make a final point about the book, something we haven't talked about, which is that it, there is a kind of beat poet spirit over over the book and a, a lot of attention to poetry and a lot of interest in that, and the, uh, the prose reflects that, I think, in this book, and well, you're obviously you. very yeah. fond of the beats, yeah. I'm guessing. Well, yeah, well, like Karen, I, I do, I work, hard on the words and uh, there's there's a bunch of us who do and there's a bunch of us who don't <laughs> but that was very nice thank that you was. all for um, thank you You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.